Hi, I'm Brett Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. So little progress has been made by tobacco companies in reducing the harm of combustible tobacco. That's according to the recently released Tobacco Transformation Index. From 2017 to 2019, the world's 15 largest tobacco companies achieved only a marginal decline in cigarette sales while continuing marketing practices that focus on boosting sales of high-risk products. Joining us today to discuss the results of this first-of-its-kind measure is Dr. Derek Yock, president of the Foundation for a Smoke-Free World. Derek, thanks for joining us again on RegWatch. Hi, great to join you again. It's always good to have you on the show. A lot of great feedback from the last time you were on in June. Let's uh, first off get you to recap for our audience your experience in tobacco control and your role at the World Health Organization and the development of the organization's Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. Yes, well, I like to always remind people um, I'm originally from South Africa, still proudly South African, and also a U.S. citizen. Um, and it was my South African experience that really got me involved in tobacco control as a start, uh, particularly in the run-up to uh, the Mandela election of 1994. Um, and the result uh, of that work was, I think, fairly good legislation and regulations in South Africa. Um, that really uh, held smoking rates and started reducing them over the years that followed. Um, I then went off to the World Health Organization, and when uh, Groharl and Brundtland became the Director General in 1998, uh, she assigned to me the task of uh, putting together a team to establish the world's first treaty in health, what became the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. And my job with our team um, was to do the preparatory work to check that the science was in place to define the nature of the need, what were we trying to address, and our focus on the transnational aspects of tobacco. At the time, 4 million people were recorded to die of tobacco-related death and disease, and about a billion used tobacco-related products. This was, a, say, the late 90s. Our goal was to try and see how we could make a difference relatively quickly. And over the course of that five years, uh, we went through major negotiations all over the world. Many of the early ones actually started in British Columbia and in um, Halifax, Nova Scotia. The Canadian government, interestingly, was a very early supporter of the entire focus of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. And over the ensuing years, um, the treaty uh, landed up with defining what works, what doesn't work to reduce tobacco. And we've seen uh, in the ensuing years that many of aspects of the Framework Convention have slowly been implemented and rolled out uh, to varying degrees. So we're going to talk more about the, the framework in the last half of the show. So let's jump to Foundation for a Smoke-Free World and the Tobacco Transformation Index. Fill us in on how Smoke-Free World got started. What's its purpose? So um, the, the, the initial story is, is interesting. Um, I think particularly for many people who haven't heard it before. Um, I was uh, working in a really exciting um, company called Vitality who has a focus of promoting healthy living worldwide and doing it by using behavioral economics incentives um, to try and stimulate positive behavior change. Um, so for example, you'd, you'd be given a free Apple Watch, which would remain free, uh, inversely proportionate to your level of activity. Uh, a rare, whole range of incentives were designed to stimulate you to smoke less, um, eat healthily, do your screening, but built very much from empathy with the person and on modern behavioral economics. 
when I got a call um, to actually visit with um, the head of Philip Morris, the CEO, and um, in the discussion that started then, which was initially clandestine, um, his real interest was to say that the company was committed to ending smoking and ending the combust use of combustibles worldwide and wanted to show me what they were doing in terms of research and development and early product development, early product launches in Japan. Over the course of about a year, it became clear that what they were doing seemed pretty serious and could very well actually have a bigger impact in a shorter time on ending the use of combustibles than much that I'd seen in the smoking cessation world. And so we started thinking that what the world really needs now is to accelerate knowledge of tobacco harm reduction and cessation, accelerate and define what would work far better, particularly in low middle income companies, countries. And I suggested that the best vehicle to do it would be a foundation that they would fund. And um, they did, and they have funded it. The foundation now exists. It's a independent foundation operating under IRS laws in the US which make it very clear that you cannot have undue influence from the source of the funding, PMI. We have an independent board. Um, we operate um, with a independent group of scientific advisors. And the decisions we make on the research on where we go are really driven by, we believe, need and potential impact on saving lives. Now, I would imagine there's been, that's a hornet's nest, pretty much. Yes. No, and uh, I, well, I, I think that um, you've got to also understand my personality a bit. I usually start the morning swimming uh, in very cold waters. Um, and my wife always uh, says that um, between my psychiatrist, uh, she's convinced that I have a punitive ego. And I think that's the only type of uh, personality that you could have to undertake this kind of work. And uh, I'm luckily I'm joined by tons of colleagues and friends who have the same approach, basically to say, if you want to do what's right in terms of tobacco control and often areas of public health, you will have to go outside of the mainstream and do what many would consider not the popular decision. And so by accepting money from the tobacco industry, um, we were immediately labeled as being the devil incarnate, um, which was fine, um, but we expected that. But I think what is not expected as much and what is totally unacceptable has been the harassment and ad hominem attacks on colleagues and friends and grantees, scientists, researchers, and academics who merely pursuing what they believe is an alternative way of saving lives in the world. And for that, they get banned from major conferences. Their publications will not even be considered by what are regarded as independent journalists and journals. That is, uh, that is really unacceptable. But as I said, we've kept going. And I think the, the proof of it now is that we are starting to release new and important information that can drive change even faster, of which the index, we believe, is our latest output. And we're at, that's right where we're going. But before we do that, if, the, you know, if there's money on the table, there should be a lot of it. And so did PMI really get behind this effort? Uh, they got behind it in terms of providing the funding, yes. Um, and um, Well, how much, I guess, was, is the question. Well, initially, they gave us just under a billion, and that has been cut. Uh, in the last few months during COVID-19. Um, um, but we believe that we are still at a level of funding that is way beyond any other entity worldwide uh, trying to actually address research and development in, in developing countries. Nowhere even close. 
so to give you a sense of the uh, the other players, um, Bloomberg Philanthropies has a certain ideological focus on what they do, but it does a lot of good work trying to strengthen policy-related work. They don't do research. They don't believe in building capacity in developing countries for scientists and researchers, and they steer completely away from harm reduction and cessation, which is our niche. The National Institutes of Health, many of the other major funders um, have studiously avoided this area as well, except for a brief period when the NIH had a 10-year program that I was very involved in, in trying to build capacity in developing countries. That program ended and now there's literally uh, morsels on the table. So if you're sitting in India or you're sitting in Malaysia or in, uh, in, in Indonesia or in South Africa or in Nigeria, and you are trying to find research um, to actually address harm reduction or cessation in your country, you have virtually no chance of finding the funding because neither your national body nor any international donors see that as a priority to support. That's distressing, um, very distressing. So let's jump into the Tobacco Transformation Index and let's preface that. And we've got a lot of slides today, which um, your organization was uh, very very nice to share with us. And this is the slow decline in cigarette sales prolongs the epidemic. So provide us an understanding of what this means. What this means is that um, if we do business as usual, um, which would be the um, pink line, we will see that um, in, in billions of sticks, a slow, steady decline um, over the next 30, 40 years. If we are able to find a way to accelerate it, and the only way to accelerate it is by better cessation and harm reduction, we could actually have a dramatic impact on bringing this, these numbers down pretty fast. The problem has been that um, there has been an inbuilt lack of ambition to what is really achievable. And for that reason, and we can go into the reasons later, we are still stuck on the pink line, which is slow, incremental steady decline but remember that means continued increased deaths for a number of years before we start seeing a decline in the deaths and disease rates and then let's start uh with the promise then behind risk reduced products because the idea is that if those products were actually brought to market and were supported in a substantial way they could make a difference and we have here responsible use of ENDS, which is electronic nicotine delivery systems, could save the lives of 3.1 million to 22.8 million current smokers. Derek. Yeah, this is, um, you know, looking over time, and this is just one estimate. Um, there have been a number of models that have come out recently, um, some of them by some of the greatest uh, health economists in the field of tobacco control, Ken Warner being one. Um, others have been by groupings of academics from prestigious universities like NYU, working with a wide range of tobacco companies as well. All of them basically saying that if we were to inject into the system of tobacco control harm reduction products, uh, we would accelerate the decline in deaths. And they model a number of the assumptions about how big that difference would be. And of course, there's still some question about is it going to be um, tens of millions over the next 15, 20 years, or is it going to be multiples of that? And to get certainty on it, we're going to have to obviously have better research. But at this stage, we can say with a fair degree of certainty, without too many assumptions, 
that the amount of lives to be saved if we accelerated the availability of farm reduction would be greater than almost any other intervention we can dream up in public health. Now, there is quite a bit of pushback, obviously, on vaping, uh, to use a colloquial term. Why is that? I mean, sometimes it seems, you know, maniacal. I think there are many reasons. I mean, it's not just vaping, but uh, it's, it's, I think if you take the entire category of harm reduction, the initial opposition, I think, is understandable um, in terms of those products that were developed by tobacco companies. Um, so SNOS, for example, um, a smokeless tobacco, which confers substantially lower risks than combustibles, um, made initially by Swedish Match. Um, many of the heated tobacco products made by major multinationals. Um, some of the e-cigarettes now being made by some major tobacco companies, but actually usually made by separate standalone smaller companies. And the tobacco control folk have really decided that anything produced by a tobacco company or anything related to a company, tobacco company, on first principles, must be a trick, a ruse to try and keep people on nicotine, and therefore it's a bad thing and can't be trusted. That's um, the one view. The other is really tempered on the fact that we have had some false starts. We have had efforts where low tar and light cigarettes were introduced by tobacco companies as a harm reduction product. And time showed that actually they didn't confer reduced risk. And in some cases, they may very well increase your risk. This is a very different era. The level of technology be going into these products, the level of evaluation and the kind of reviews that we're now getting of them out of, say, the US FDA um, have never, ha never happened before with regard to the low tar um, or the ultra low tar products. I think the other thing is that there's um, a real concern about children. And that is that if you take down the combustible products and you leave on the place now a wide range of alternative nicotine products, kids will take these up, they will become addicted. And while they will, won't be on cigarettes, they'll be on another form of addiction replacing cigarettes. Of course, one has to balance that against the fact that those are going to dramatically lower their lifelong potential of having any harmful effects. And while they use the term addiction as if it's a deadly a deadly uh, sentence, which it isn't, um, it's played into the concern that we're simply giving kids a new thing to use to take up. So I think it's this combination of the tobacco industry was bad in the past. They can't be trusted. They're not going to change themselves. That, that is reason number one. Two, that whatever's on the market is going to get into the hands of kids, and that's going to damage the brains and the health of kids in future. And for those reasons, let's actually do nothing about it. Let's ban all of these products. And of course, you ban all these products. What happens? Combustibles stay on the market. And we've seen that. We've seen the pace of decline of cigarette sales you know, slow, meaning that more people are staying smoking, and even some are going back. We know that, we, you know, in areas where there has been, you know, very dramatic vaping restrictions in place, uh, placed, that people are going back to smoking. I mean, we know that. I know that. You know, yeah. it's just pure and simple. So the Tobacco Transformation Index is designed then to measure how well tobacco companies today are doing with their commitments towards harm reduction. Is that not correct? Yeah, it's supposed to shine an independent light on what are they doing. And it's, it, it, you know, we know that we're at a very important stage. That for the first time, we've got 
real technology options to lower risk. The question is, who's using them? How serious are the companies about them? How do we independently assess that this is not just a cherry on the top of what they're doing anyway, with business as usual? How deeply is this penetrating the entire approach of a company? And we'll get into some of the details of that. And who are the front runners? Who are the laggards? And what is the size of the journey we have to go? And we do this um, knowing that we are at the beginning of what we hope is going to be a continuous transformation process. And if you think of the, um, the end of the internal combustion engine, um, the startup of hybrids and electric cars, I think we're probably five or six years uh, behind where they are today. If you went back 10 years, there wouldn't be an electric car on the market. Hybrids were sort of known by a few, um, very few players. Today, they're becoming more mainstream, but they are still not yet the dominant, um, the dominant uh, vehicle uh, on the road. But we know that the trends are moving in the right direction. So we want to assess where are we today and what can we be doing using competition among companies um, by leveraging the interests of the institutional investors, remembering that they constitute 85% of the investment, certainly in the multinationals. And how do we start a debate around the laggards, which tend to be um, many of the state monopolies? And I've got a slide up here. Why is the index needed? Exactly. And as you see, the, the key point is uh, our ultimate goal is the elimination of the highest risk products. They should not be on the market. We should be ending the sale of all combustibles. But to do that, you've got to know where you are today and how you can accelerate the goal to actually end them. And let's take a look here at kind of the categories in which you're, you guys are measuring. Yeah, so maybe a, a, just a couple of words of each of them. Um, by strategy of management, one of the key things we're interested in is there a clear statement by the CEO and the board of the company committing themselves to a harm reduction future? And we'll see later that not too many companies have actually made those very clear statements. Um, I spent many years at um, PepsiCo and I was privileged to have Indra Nui, I would say a truly visionary leader, uh, driving the change to lower salt and sugar and fat and have healthy products and so on. And she was very clear in the market to the investors, to the consumers about the need to change and the vision of trying to have the healthiest possible portfolio. That's the sort of statement we were looking at under that category. Another important category, I'd say, um, relates to sales. And um, in the end, that's where rubber meets the road. We really want to know how do we have what people are calling a hybrid metric, a metric that takes account of the need for companies to stay profitable, to be able to make the changes needed, while making the changes. Um, so you could think of a, uh, an energy company, the progress to decarbonization would be a measure. Well, for the tobacco companies, is a very simple measure. The percentage of sales from reduced risk products, as, which is a percentage of the total sales. And that's something which we looked at and we measure and monitor. I think the, the next measure, which we also look at under, under that, is to start looking at what is happening to research and development. How people, how companies, allocating the capital. And anybody who studies a company will know that um, the decision on CapEx investment in big infrastructure, are they putting up new factories to make combustible cigarettes, or are they taking those down and putting up factories now to actually produce reduce risk products? That's a pretty hard measure of whether the company is really changing. 
is the percentage of the R&D budget rising and going predominantly behind the reduced risk category? Or is it stuck on marginal improvements on making a combustible cigarette taste a little bit nicer and be more alluring to people? Those are some of the measures we looked at. Okay, well, that's fantastic. So let's talk about the results then. Uh, right here is the 2020 index ranking at a glance. Now, you're going to have to explain this to me because I don't know what the numbers mean um, and, and overall with this graphic. Is this good news that we're seeing here? Let's start with that and then dive into the details. I would say, um, you know, the, the, if you look there, let's not worry too much about the numbers. A, a perfect score would be, uh, you know, out of five, six. Um, so there's still a long way to go. And, you know, the numbers were set by our external team who put this together, Euromonitor and Sustainability, um, overseen by an independent panel of advisors. So we in the foundation gave all our intellectual input, but in the end, uh, the collection of the data, the analysis, the reports were not done by foundation staff, but were done by this team, Euromonitor Sustainability, overseen by a panel of advisors. Um, you know, how I would interpret this, um, and it may actually be better to go to the next graphic um, where I, I think you have one showing the percentage of sales. Um, uh, if you do, maybe you can put that one up. And the percentage of that. sales. I'm not certain I've got that one, Derek. Uh, can you give me anything else on it? That. Oh, if you go back to if you go back to that one, I'll I'll talk to this one anyway. Okay. So, I mentioned that one of the most sensitive measures um, is the product sales. So look at the pink. Um, that's the second category from your left. Um, so you've got strategy and management. Take a look there, and you'll see that um, in the top six companies: Swedish Match, Philip Morris, BAT, Altria, Imperial Japan, and um, and actually it wouldn't go down to Korea, um, they have got uh, some degree of orange. That means that there's a vision, there's a clear statement, there's some intent to move ahead, uh, which is good news. The biggest differentiator is what's happening in the pink, product sales. So look at that Swedish match figure. And what that translates into is about 44% of all products being sold by Swedish match are reduced risk products, 44% by value. Um, so that is a reasonably good figure, and that explains why they're the winner um, at this stage. But remember, what are they selling? Um, they are not selling predominantly combustible products. They are mainly in the smokeless category. They are the world uh, seller of SNUS, general SNUS, and a range of other smokeless products, which you can argue um, in relative terms They've been in for many years, so they've had a long runway to get there. Second on the list um, you'll see is Philip Morris International, where 19%, compared to 44% for, um, for Swedish Match, PMI comes in at 19% by value of their sales are in reduced risk products. And that means uh, in the denominator, you would have the massive Barbara category plus everything else. Um, this represents the biggest advance by a company which is predominantly in the combustible area. And then you jump down, and there are two companies, um, British American Tobacco, um, and it doesn't show it on here, and the, the ordering is different for the sales volume, and Korea are around 5%. So just remember, 44 to 19, two companies at 5%, two at three, and then we drop down to almost zero. So you could say that 
there really are two front runners um, who are making progress both on strategy and sales. And later we'll see that this is backed by um, their investment in R&D, their investment in marketing. But then uh, towards the bottom of the list, you've got these very large state monopolies, the Chinese state monopoly, Eastern out of e Egypt, Vietnam, Thailand, and so on, where there's been virtually no movement, in fact, no movement in the reduced risk category. Now, I must give you a little caveat, and I'm sure your viewers will ask the question, well, where are the big e-cigarette companies or even the small e-cigarette and vaping companies? They don't come into this ranking at this stage because they don't make the top 15 by global sales. In some parts of the world, they would be very significant. So if we run this separately in the US, of course, Jewel would have come out. Smur now uh, out of China is obviously a big emerging e-cigarette company. And um, uh, you would also see some other uh, smaller companies in individual countries. But that's why they are not appearing. And they constitute about 40, 45 million users worldwide are now using e-cigarettes. And they don't come into these calculations. So bear that in mind. In time, uh, hopefully, they will emerge uh, as part of this ranking. It's astonishing whenever I hear that number, and it's a fresh number. You've mentioned it before on our show back in June. That's a lot of people that have made the switch from smoking to vaping. It's a huge number. And, you know, in the next few months, we will bring out additional data showing the, the tens of millions who've moved in across all of these categories. So, you know, the millions who've moved from combustibles or more toxic smokeless into snus and zin, the percentage of moved to heated tobacco products, 10, 11, 12 million just in the PMI fold. I don't have the data at the bottom of my head about the BAT in Japan, tobacco and Korea equivalent. And then 40, 50 million in the e-cigarette categories. These are starting to be very, very big numbers. And these are numbers of people who are no longer predominantly using combustible cigarettes. So let me ask you then, if there is so many out there that are using ENDS products, how come, you know, there's such a pushback against them? They're getting, you know, totally pushed under the rug. Well, um, smokers have historically been uh, stigmatized, discriminated, um, regarded as the problem. Their voice has never been taken seriously in policy fora. When I was at the World Health Organization, um, you know, Mayor Culpa, uh, you know, we actually um, set out to demonize the tobacco industry and in the process, demonize the smoker and really expunge smokers from the policy debate. And I think the one thing I've learned uh, coming into this work now, um, after years in looking at classic tobacco control, is that we fail to learn from the HIV AIDS um, activists that we should be making sure that there's nothing for us without us, nothing for those trying to actually get off a combustible without their active engagement in deciding what solutions work best for them. Because allegedly, that's why we're doing it. We're not doing it for some general need of the population. We're doing it for the class of smokers who are at high risk of dying if they continue on the existing products, and they will die painful deaths of lung cancer, chronic lung disease, heart disease. What we did as well was not only ignore them, but we ignored the diseases and the health-related issues that they're struggling with. And so the term tobacco control is sort of a cleansed term with no sense of what is it about? It's actually lung cancer prevention, oral cancer prevention, tuberculosis prevention, chronic obstructive airways disease prevention. That's what tobacco control is about. It's not about merely ending the use of a product. It's about gaining lives and improving the health of populations. 
Let's uh, jump into some of the key findings of the index. And this first one is pace of the cigarette phase out has been negligible. Yeah, and, and I think this is the danger of the average or uh, pooling everything. So we're pooling this across 15 companies and you could see um, a marginal decline from 4.9 trillion. I mean, these are just huge numbers to 4.8 trillion. <laughs> um, and so you could say this is a, a decline of about 1% over the period. Um, remember, I stressed that there are some companies, though, who would have achieved substantially faster progress, and there's some where sales are now up to 44% or 19%. And then let's jump over to the next finding, few tobacco companies prioritize reduced risk products. Yeah, and this is what I, I stressed. And, um, you know, there are two or three companies in the uh, 5 and 3% range, and then the uh, dramatic drop away. And you can lean back and say, oh, well, this is terrible, that this is a failure. Um, well, it isn't a failure. We don't read this as a failure. We read this as a initial start. Now, if you'd read the numbers on the proportion of people who had so solar panels on their roof decades ago, it didn't go from zero to where it is 25% in some parts of the world overnight. It started with single digit gains, sm small single digits. Now, some of these reduced risk product categories have actually been growing in relative terms quite quickly. So the way in which we saw in the Japanese market, the growth of uh, heated tobacco products across PMI, BAT and Japan tobacco was pretty fast for any consumer product. You know, as I said, I was in PepsiCo and we would struggle to try. We'd be very happy if you started seeing people move from full calorie to um, low and ultra low calorie products. Um, and you'd be looking at single digit shifts. Here we're starting to see double digit gains. And in some parts of the world from zero, we've now got 15, 20, 25 percent of the combustible population now using reduced risk products. On the aggregate, that is still an incredibly long way to go. But in some of the cities, whether it's across Eastern Central Europe or, you know, as I said, across the cities of Japan and Korea, some parts of the UK, they're actually starting to be quite impressive numbers. Excellent, excellent. That's good news. So another one of the key findings, marketing focus on boosting high-risk product sales. So they may be saying that they're going to re you know, reduce risk products, but they're still piling a bunch of money into the marketing of regular traditional combustible cigarettes. Is that not what this reads? No, that is absolutely right. And I think um, I would also say that this kind of data really informs a more serious discussion around um, the struggle that goes on inside a company. Um, how do they allocate their dollars on the one hand to make sure that they have the maximum growth on where they want to go for some of them, which is reduced risk, while on the other, maintaining the legacy unhealthy brands who are the cash cow to provide the R&T and capability to accelerate the change. And so it's a tricky balance. And I'm sure it's a balance that takes place between the, the CFO, um, those heading R&D, and the health people. It's no different from any other company trying to transform a portfolio from what has been a legacy, predictable old market to try and bring in a new one to displace the old. The means to displace the old is coming from the profits and the revenue derived from the stuff you're trying to displace. And so that is, I hope in time, we will see that shrink dramatically. And as we start seeing the uh, take up of sales of producers products, there will be um, the ability to drop dramatically the marketing budget. The same was true of R&D. 
Um, but uh, I don't know if we have the R&D um, graphic, but there the, the information is, I think, more promising. We're starting to see many of the top companies allocating the predominance of their R&D budget to reduce risk portfolios. And in many of the cases, some of the companies who are still not showing up in double digits on sales, on the percentage of sales of reduced risk products, are showing up in high investment in R&D, suggesting to me, if I'm an analyst, that in the next five, 10 years, they are going to be getting there then because it takes time for an R&D budget to show up in actual sales on the street. And they're investing in advance of that, knowing what is going to be released. So let me ask so the you- The trend is good. The trend is good. So let me ask you then, you've seen these budgets or at least you know had some insight into them. Can you tell our audience whether or not if big tobacco companies are currently right now spending a good deal of money on research and development for new vaping products? Like, I mean, are there new vaping products coming from t big tobacco in the pipeline? Yes, uh, absolutely no doubt. I think if you look at their earnings reports, you look at all the public uh, documents that are filed officially, so these can't, they can't lie or cheat. They're open to verification. If you look at the filings in front of the FDA, um, if you look at the product launches and the, as I say, um, the actual dollar investments, we're seeing that at least in the top four or five companies, significant investment in the R&D of a vision of, uh, of that'll end combustible product. We're not seeing that in the laggards. We're not seeing it in the state monopolies, uh, maybe except on the margin. And that is an issue that we will get to, I suppose, in a few seconds. Yeah, let's t uh, do the the next, the last slide that we have on the key findings, and that's with regards to the low, medium income countries. Fill us in there. Yeah, so um, what the report shows is that the predominance of sales are in advanced industrialized countries of reduced risk product. And that while we're seeing those markets expand for reduced risk, uh, most of the companies are still sticking to business as usual in companies like in countries like the Philippines or Indonesia or uh, India or Nigeria or South Africa. Um, so they haven't innovated for products to meet the price point of those markets, firstly. Um, secondly, they haven't started the marketing. And um, thirdly, we're still seeing mergers and acquisitions when companies buy other companies are tending to be more combustible cigarette companies in low middle income countries than buying uh, maybe a startup vape shop or a startup innovative reduced risk products. Now, when you say that, you've got to be aware of, well, what are some of the reasons for it? And some of the reasons are the forces mounted against harm reduction. So in some of the uh, low middle income countries, the government has banned those products. So you can't expect a company to be launching a whole bunch of reduced risk products into a market where those very things are banned. And the bans are being supported by Bloomberg Philanthropies and their NGOs through the calls of say, the International Union of um, Lung Diseases and Tuberculosis, the union, who have explicitly called for a total ban on all e-cigarettes and heated tobacco products in low middle income countries. So if they got their way, the world of the future would continue with combustible cigarettes forever or at a pace that actually was in accord with WHO's uh, long-term slowing of the epidemic, but there would be no opportunity to accelerate the decline in deaths by putting reduced risk products onto the market. That's the vision of Bloomberg Philanthropy's grantees around the world, and that has been taken up by many governments, making it difficult for a company to actually launch products in those markets. 
And definitely we're going to get to a really big issue around this is that, and that is how much organizations and governments, you know, are really impeding these tobacco companies from doing this work. And I want to just hold that, shelve that for a second. If anybody's wondering why we're not going to do that, because we're definitely going to go there. I want to frame that within the framework uh, discussion. So we've got just a couple of more, and this definitely is going to be one that I know that is a big issue. And that is globally, there are 18 countries where governments own 10% or more of at least one tobacco company. We're not just talking about capitalist corporations here. We really are talking about governments and some of them are a little uh, notorious. Yeah. So I really commend this report to, to your, your viewers to really look at in depth. Uh, it's a landmark report by Daniel Milan, now Trinity college in, in Dublin. And for the very first time, it lays bare a what he calls a fundamental contradiction uh, in the way in which government approaches tobacco control. What this shows are the countries with major state monopolies. And uh, when you said that they have a significant earning, you'll see from the slide that that is up to 100%, where the government is 100% owner of the tobacco company in the Lebanon, in Syria, in China, 24% in India, 100% in Iran, uh, in Iraq, 100%, Egypt, 51%, and so it goes. Vietnam, 100%. So the government is the owner of the state monopoly. As a group, these um, state monopolies account for half, 50% of all cigarettes sold worldwide. So half of all cigarettes are sold by state monopolies. So when you think of who really big tobacco is, really big tobacco, there's only one really big tobacco company, and that's the Chinese state monopoly. Um, the multinationals, starting with Philip Morris and BAT, I would say are medium to modest tobacco. Um, the question then is, why don't we ever talk about this? Why don't we talk about the fact that these are governments who've signed the Framework Convention, who have agreed to abide by many of the provisions which require that they either limit or do not have contact with the tobacco companies, but they own them. Well, that's kind of about as intimate as you can get to being involved with a tobacco company if you own the thing. <laughs> and not only that, is that they have an inherent um, contradiction between their fiduciary responsibility, their responsibility as a government to maximize the investment in terms of profits and taxes, which is the reason why you would usually have a state monopoly, and their health responsibility to minimize the health effects. The two are obviously in a clash, in a deep conflict. What the report does is it goes into incredible detail about many of the countries and where they are in terms of the um, transparency index, the indexes of um, openness to democracy and democratic processes and questioning of the status quo. Many of them do not do pretty well on those criteria. But they also, he also then goes on to say, so what is the solution? Is the solution simply to the government to sell them off? Well, no, we know what happens when you sell off state monopolies. They become more efficient um, and sales of cigarettes may very well go up, not down. We believe that the solution lies in what, paradoxically, the capitalist-driven side of the sector is doing, Swedish match, Philip Morris, to some extent now BAT, Korean tobacco, um, none of whom are state monopolies, all are driven by market forces, driven by the need to address both profitability and improving the health of their consumers. 
So the solution for those would be to accelerate entry into the harm reduction field. And in, by doing that, they'd be able to save a significant proportion of their continued profitability by selling products that would be dramatically low at risk, thereby lowering the health consequences of those products, particularly in countries where in the case of China, almost 2 million people die of combustible cigarettes today. Now, in a blog post uh, that you made on the Foundation for a Smoke-Free World's website um, just recently, as you came back from the 2020 um, Global Tobacco Nicotine Forum, and yes. on the to and the topic was uh, who is getting tobacco regulation right? And you wrote in the blog post that the answer to that question is very, very few, <laughs> and that most governments are failing us, and that. WHO, the WHO, World Health Organization, which really should be the centerpiece of putting it all together, is not making much progress. And then the last little slide here for fun is they now actively, the WHO, actively discourages the use of reduced risk products and support calls for bans on tobacco harm reduction products across the low and middle income countries. So this is the organization that's responsible for world health. And the one that, you know, is responsible for the framework, Convention on Tobacco Control, which you played an instrumental role in. And you're saying it's not only that they're not doing enough, but they're being, they're actively stymieing efforts. Yeah, in the areas of harm reduction, they are actively stymieing efforts. And um, they've been doing it now for several years. Um, and they have their own conflicts of interest. Uh, a lot of their funding is Bloomberg Philanthropy supported. And again, if you track back, uh, Bloomberg Philanthropy is supporting the very NGOs calling for the bans in low middle income countries. WHO is listening to that. It's been putting out the same kind of message in a coordinated strategy. WHO is the link to the countries of the low middle income countries and advising, if you can read the website, you can read their documents, advising countries that it's actually better to go ahead and ban e-cigarettes or ban uh, heated tobacco products um, than allow them on the market. And the reasons given are, pretty patronizing. Basically, I think the argument is that uh, these countries are unable to deal with tobacco control. Uh, therefore, don't throw something else at them, which is too confusing for the poor governments to deal with, like harm reduction. Rather get them to implement a clean, nice ban and um, continue with their combustible cigarettes or their toxic non-smokeless products in the case of India and much of Asia. That argument really doesn't hold water. And um, I, I would say, though, that there's a lot which WHO is doing, which is absolutely on the mark. And the, the kernel of the Framework Convention really was bounded by um, issues related to improving price structures, addressing the price of tobacco products, uh, banning advertising, uh, smoke-free public places, um, and a range of uh, more advisory educational uh, kind of approaches, all of which have had a sustained, steady impact on decreasing smoking rates. In fact, to such a degree um, that over the last couple of decades, we've now at a turning point where, the where we probably are heading into a decline for leaf tobacco and tobacco products for the first time in many, many, many decades. And that, that is a success. My argument is that that is an ambitionless goal. We need to have the world raise their ambition against the fact that there are 7 million people who die directly because of tobacco use, another million because of the uh, indirect effects, with a 1.3 billion base of tobacco users. We should be more ambitious about saying, how do we get from that 
to cut it by 50% within a decade or two, not over the next endless period of time, which is what will happen if you continue the slow, very steady incremental approach of the convention. Now, I think we've learned under the, during the COVID-19 pandemic about the need for speed. And suddenly the deaths and the lives to be saved um, are right in the minds of people. And we've seen accelerated approaches to everything from vaccine development to getting drugs out to pushing the public health messages and getting them accelerated on a universal basis. The question is, where's that same sense of urgency when it comes to something um, that is killing substantially more people and will continue to kill year after year after year, well after the pandemic is under control? I don't see it. And I think it's in the mindset um, of public health officials to rather act on something that they see in front of them that is killing in the short term than to put in place the measures that could bring about a serious decline in death and disease over the next decade or decade or two. Now, your organization um, was involved with the 15 years of Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. I've got that up here right now. So what is this effort? This just finished up, I believe, last week, correct? You, had, you guys had an event, a virtual event? Yes, this was um, organized by the um, Food and Drug Bulletin, and um, it, it really brought together some of the researchers and scientists who were challenged to say, what is it that's missing from the agenda um, that would accelerate an end to smoking? And so some of the, the kind of uh, topics that came through was um, the fact that harm reduction was part of the definition of, the, of tobacco control in WHO right from the beginning. But having it as a definition is not the same as acting on, a, on it. And we need to see action to actually promote use as opposed to denigrate and stop the use. Secondly, the area of smoking cessation by WHO's own admission has been on a very slow path. We've got products on the market that were actually invented 40 years ago and very few since that could presumably accelerate effective cessation for those who want to quit completely. But there have been virtually no breakthroughs and no products designed explicitly for low middle income countries. That's the second big area of neglect. The third was the role of women. In the Framework Convention, and I remember it so well, we wrote about something like alarmed at the increase of smoking among women. Uh, this was 20 years ago. Well, we're still alarmed. Well, we should stop being alarmed. We should start acting. The reality is that one of the reports by Alexander Solomon, Gender, Women, and the Future of Tobacco Control, highlights very clearly that for many countries in the world, lung cancer death rates exceed breast cancer death rates by half. And there's been no discussion around this. There's been no discussion around what does it mean uh, when we actually look at the fact that the smoking rate in young women under the age of 40, and particularly teens, is now equivalent to that in men, which means inevitably we will see the death rates from smoking-related diseases in women across Eastern Central Europe, many parts of Latin America, rise rather steadily over the next decade or two, but virtually no discussion. It also highlights the fact that we have um, very high-risk groups around the world where the smoking rate may be two to three times that of the general population. Marua Glover's paper, for example, highlights uh, that being the reality among indigenous people, whether it's the Maori of New Zealand or whether it's many indigenous groups across um, parts of the Americas, or even uh, the, the, the polar Arctic uh, circle, all share the commonality of having 
two to three times the smoking rate of the general population. The same is true in the LGBTQ community, as she defines the rainbow groups, where we see smoking rates two to three times those of general population and virtually very little being done about it. And the final group I'd highlight is those people with mental health, where people with schizophrenia, the smoking rates are around 70 to 80%, 70 to 80% smoking rates, which is a reason why we can see that people with schizophrenia die on average 15 years younger, less younger than those who do not have schizophrenia. And the predominant reason isn't the underlying cause of disease, schizophrenia, it's the fact that they're smoking at very high rates. And yet we have very few examples of interventions to do something. In that article, um, uh, Pooja Patwadan um, and her team in the UK are doing really innovative work inside mental institutions to see how we can actually bring the smoking rates down in an empathetic way. And that usually means encouraging the use of a wide range of reducerous products, as well as other forms of nicotine that mental health patients feel comfortable with and will try and test. I suspect that's going to be turn out to be very landmark work. You know, Dr. Yacht, one, one of the yeah, things here, let yeah. me just interject in that is surprising and awesome is that a real effort to turn smoking cessation into a social justice issue. Yes. Well, I think that we've seen in the history of um, public health and medicine, we only make progress when it's actually, when the public health issue is actually linked to a human rights and a social justice issue. The HIV AIDS uh, people taught us an enormous amount about that. Um, but I think tobacco control has tended to live in a relatively cloistered world and has not actually seen the links to basic rights. When I was at WHO, I actually worked with UNICEF um, on a report, which um, is long forgotten, but somewhere out there on the website, looking at the rights of the child and asking the question, how does preventing smoking linked to the rights of the child? Or how does the rights of women under CEDAW, many of the Convention of the Rights of Women, uh, link uh, to smoking? And a lot of work was done about bringing the rights-based people in the rights-based language. But in the last few years, it's kind of become dissipated. Why it's so important to have that language in there is that it brings and galvanizes communities that are not public health focused only but they see the broader world of where people are stigmatized and discriminated, not just on the basis of one characteristic, being a woman, being LGBTQ, being poor, being marginalized, but seeing the intersectionality, the way these bits come together as a whole um, to actually keep people isolated from having the best access to improving their own lives and their own health. So you've got the Tobacco Transformation Index, which is designed to hold tobacco companies to account for their commitments that they've made publicly about harm reduction. Is this conference and some of the work you're doing with regard to WHO and the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, are you trying to hold them accountable too? Is that, is that really what's going on here? Um, I wish we actually had as strong a clarity of purpose as you outlined. So I'll claim, yes, that is what we were doing, <laughs> but actually uh, that is what we should be doing. But I think what you're highlighting is 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 is, uh, 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 is something that certainly should be thought through. How do you hold governments accountable for pledges made? The multinationals, we know how to do it. They're the shareholder demands. They're the investors, the institutional pressures. All of those are relatively easy, uh, well tried and tested, and they do work. They've changed oil and gas companies. They've changed all these companies. 
how do you hold countries accountable given that um, it's got to be through moral persuasion? It's got to be through um, uh, a wide range of diplomatic, isolatory kind of policies. And historically, um, we found that praising the best is certainly one way to go. But creating indexes is another way to go. And so maybe the next thing we will be doing is giving an index, uh, in, uh, indexing the countries which are showing the most serious commitment to the full provisions of the Framework Convention and Tobacco Control who are truly making progress. At this stage, we've got some countries um, who have professed support for the Framework Convention. Let's take Jordan or Turkey, for example, both who claim and have actually been received awards for great work done on tobacco control because they've implemented many of the provisions of the Framework Convention. The only tragedy is that the smoking rates among Jordanian men are now the highest in the world, despite getting this award. So what does that mean? It means that what is on paper is not happening in the streets. There's no sense of how you adapt from the paper and the legislature to the actual reality in people's lives, reaching smokers. And that explains why 65 to 70% of Jordanian men smoke, putting them at about the highest risk alongside Indonesian men of a wide range of cancers. And the official government response is, well, we've done everything according to the Framework Convention, but there's no be no independent oversight of whether it's really actually having an impact, which it can't be because the smoking rates are high, they're not low. The same is true of Turkey. Now, the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, the WHO, that's not a government. That's, I mean, what do we call that? I mean, for us conservatives and libertarians out there, you know, we just see them as some big amorphous, unelected group of people that are, you know, pushing citizens of countries around uh, and, and preventing us from doing things. And so if it's not a country, how do we appeal to the WHO? Yeah. Well, first, I do want to give your your, uh, your viewers an assurance. Uh, these are not um, the people wearing black suits flying around in uh, unmarked black helicopters. Oh, you say that? You <laughs> say are... that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they are. I, I, I never saw them. These are really committed public health officials. But your question is good. WHO is, uh, is an intergovernmental agency. In the end, it's the governments, the individual governments that matter. WHO itself has got limited power to take any individual action. It's all done at the behest and the support of governments. But it can cajole and support and encourage and give guidelines. And that's really what the Framework Convention uh, is all about, and many of the guidelines. Think about other parts of the UN and where we see success. The aviation rules uh, dictate how and where people can fly and flight safety. I don't think people have a concern about that interfering in the rights of governments or the rights of people, because the result is safe flying, and they understand and accept that. Uh, similarly, um, the World Meteorological Organization would be giving guidance on when the hurricane is coming and uh, how do we actually prepare for it and what do you do? Again, those are norms and guidelines that governments have to implement. How they act on them is obviously up to them. The same is with the Framework Convention. It gives what is considered usually the best advice in this case, they're not giving the best advice when it comes to harm reduction. Absolutely not. They're giving the very worst advice. Um, and in that case, it's up to the individual governments to complain. Now, I think there's going to be some very interesting um, opportunities. Um, the UK government um, is probably the most um, out front in having harm reduction strategies that really work. They're saving lives. They're integrated into clinical services. They're reaching smokers. 
they're supported by doctors, they're supported by NGOs. The UK, I suspect, uh, has been tied in what it could do individually while it was a member of the European Union. Well, it's no longer, and by the end of the year, it'll be completely out. And I would hope that they will become a very powerful individual force for harm reduction in tobacco control, taking their shining example of what they're achieving in the, for the lives of people. Somebody you might say, what is the US FDA going to do with their decisions on both General Snus and IPAS? They should be taking it to WHO and saying as a member state, hopefully they will rejoin WHO, um, they actually demand the right for WHO to actually take up their science and apply it as the future norm. That's the way things work. Governments bring what they believe are the best science or the best policy. There's a tough negotiation that goes on. And in the end, the long run, I always believe the science wins over the long run. Over the short run, we're obviously in a bit of a dip. But we will get <laughs> out of this dip. So you mentioned the UK. Uh, one of the things that it perplexes me a little bit is going to be the impact of losing public health England, at least as a, as a namesake, uh, because so much... Uh, you know, with the 95% safer and so forth. I mean, so many vapors and harm reduction advocates obviously lean on public health England, but that's soon going to be the defunct uh, uh, organization. And I just see like reams of opportunities for anti-vaping forces to utilize that and spin that in ways that the public won't understand. They'll just understand that public health England is gone. And, and what kind of impact will that have on, you know, baseline grassroots advocacy? Yeah, well, my, my, I, I also have no idea what will happen, but I certainly know um, enough of um, the folk across the UK um, from within government, from within the research establishment, the leading academics, the leading NGOs and activists, uh, to know that I, I think it's the, the, the support of harm reduction is so deeply embedded across institutions. There may be a need for some new institutional arrangement, but they will continue to be in the lead for quite a long time. I hope they become even stronger in the lead. And just remember one thing about WHO is that all the big changes tend to come when one or two or three countries have some good examples to talk about, real data. Uh, even I always remind people when we first started looking at measles vaccine way back in the 70s, it didn't take um, large research projects in every country before they were able to adopt an agreement on universal access to measles vaccine. It was a number of well-done studies in a small number of countries which became accepted worldwide. Well, we're now sitting on great examples of harm reduction working across Japan and Korea and Sweden and Norway and Iceland and the UK and some parts of the US. Those studies, those need to be collated and put on the table with the equivalence um, of a vaccine study for measles as proof that people are actually voting to move towards harm reduction products and ultimately, we hope the data will show the benefits in terms of mortality and morbidity, which, by the way, we've had for 60 years for SNUS. So we don't have to wait any more for that. And that's good news. Let me point out something. You know, our viewers sent this uh, to us. The who peddles more sham science? Coddles Chinese Communist Party. So we don't need to get into the full politics of this all. But what they have done is they've come out and they basically are quoting uh, Dr. Stanton Glantz, uh, a retracted article on heart attacks. And this is from, I mean, this is this is out on October 1st. So, I mean, doesn't the people at WHO know that that science, you know, is in disrepute? 
One would hope so. I, I think the only thing I can say at this stage about WHO, first of all, uh, you know, I remain a, a loyal supporter of having a strong World Health Organization. The world needs it for norms and standards and guidelines. I suspect that, there, that, that the senior leadership is so distracted um, by a pandemic that this kind of thing can actually sneak in and be got away from. And if they are citing a retracted study, um, I would hope that governments will be the one to respond directly and demand that be taken down which is their right, and in fact, it's their obligation to do. And let me ask you this, you know, with regards to setting leadership for countries and working with companies and, and, and cajoling them to do certain things, I mean, how is the Framework Convention on, on Tobacco Control measuring up? If you could give it a grade out of 10, knowing that you were there at the start, knowing that harm reduction, you know, is embedded uh, in, the, in the very definitions of the work, uh, that it should be doing, how would you grade the framework in the WHO? I would say on the eve of its adoption uh, 15 years ago, um, I would have given it a seven, not much higher. I mean, seven would be quite good compared to other international treaties um, because it had many of the elements required for success. Um, it also had the promise of funding which in the end is also critical. You can't implement things in low middle income countries without serious funding support. Since then, I think they've hovered around going from seven to six to five and reports have come out repeatedly by WHO, not by outside people, saying that um, the most powerful single provision for tobacco control, mainly changing price through tax, is the one that is least taken up by countries around the world. Well, that is an indictment of WHO's failure to actually work with the ministries of finance across the world. Secondly, the failure to address cessation, I would say, is another immediate missed opportunities which would drop them down to a category four. And the, the absolute explicit denial of harm reduction, now I'd push them down even further. Ooh. So if we were to right track, wrong track, that sounds like they're on the wrong track. From, from putting their weight behind the policies that make a difference and moving from legislative uh, stuff that looks good on paper to actually having impact on the streets of countries which it matters most, yes. So if, the, if WHO came out today with you know, full support, substantial support, which they sustain behind harm reduction, how different would the world look with regards to smoking and the debilitating impact it has on world health? I think it would spur a level of innovation and excitement around tobacco control itself and the ability to end lung cancer, oral cancer, all of these terrible diseases, uh, particularly in low middle income countries. I think to the colleagues I know in places like India or in South Africa or in Pakistan, where I know that if that happened, uh, we don't need to import new science and new technology. They have a good sense about um, the adaptation of products to meet the low-income markets of those countries where it have its biggest impact. If the, if the decision to reverse direction and support harm reduction came with an investment of funding or a promise of funding, that would actually make things happen faster. And the impact, the impact from all of the modeling and some of my own uh, relatively thumb-suck type estimates would mean we would start reducing death rates by two, three million uh, per year uh, from the seven million over the course of the next few decades, saving more lives through implementing a mixture of harm reduction and cessation 
than any public health intervention people can dream of. Well, and that's important. And it's uh, shocking that things aren't moving quicker. Um, what is up next for you and the foundation over the next couple of months before the year finishes out? Well, um, I can tell you that we've got some amazing work reviewing the quantum of smokers who've moved away from combustibles to a range of uh, uh, harm reduction products uh, that have not been seen before. Um, I don't want to steal their thunder, but over the next few months, we'll be releasing these reports, which are not done by us. They're done by a mixture of public and private players um, around the world. I think they will show very clearly that there are large country experiments that are succeeding in moving people off combustibles in substantial numbers. And those are an example of um, what I wrote in the article about the best success we're seeing is the smokers' demand to move off their combustible. This is absolute proof of that um, in the numbers and the drive. Um, I think also over the next few months, in fact, uh, during GTNF, we launched a new website called Understanding Nicotine. And that is incredibly important. And you'll start seeing it put out a lot more material, um, letting people understand what is the true science behind nicotine and its effects. Is it on balance positive for health or negative for health or neutral? We believe that the direction that the research is going suggests that there are more upsides than there are downsides of nicotine, particularly in terms of brain science and neuroscience. And we hope over time that'll start changing the discourse about nicotine causing cancer, which it absolutely does not. And that very belief is one that is holding back doctors um, willing to prescribe e-cigarettes. It's holding back uh, people who are e-cigarette users from moving off dual use of e-cigarettes and combustibles to be full-time e-cigarette users. And it's um, holding back governments being willing to jump in and say, let's move in favor of these clean forms of nicotine as we did 40 years ago with the patch and the gum. Well, it seems to me, obviously, that the demonization of nicotine is probably the biggest impediment uh, to ends. It is. And I think, you know, colleagues like Aaron Bibbert, a documentary producer, recently produced his uh, movie on uh, looking at the truth behind nicotine. Uh, it's really worthwhile trying to get hold of where he went to speak to scientists across the world, those in favor, those against, and it's a very good documentary review, and you come away believing, well, it's very clear we have been misled about nicotine. And it's not a question of blaming one person or the other. The problem has been that nicotine has predominantly been delivered in a dirty delivery device, a cigarette, a combustible. And we have to encourage people to understand that we're now separating the dirty delivery device from nicotine itself by taking out the combustion taking out the tar and the stuff that truly kills you and gives you cancers. Yeah, no, great documentary. I've yet to see it. Hopefully soon. We're waiting for when Aaron can free up some time to come on the show. So we're trading emails on that. And hopefully that's coming up shortly. Uh, I'll let everybody know. Dr. Yock, thank you so much for joining us today again on RegWatch. And you're welcome back anytime. Well, it's a real pleasure to be with you. And um, hopefully when I come back, we'll have some positive progress to report and talk about. Thank you. Well, you bet. Just stay right there for one second. And that is it for this edition of RegWatch. Before you head off, please go over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's support.regulatorwatch.com. And consider making a financial contribution to our vaping coverage. It's easy. Just dig into your wallet and find a few dollars and toss them our way. You'll be happy you did, and so will we. And while online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. 
For RegulatorWatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.